Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Today's guest is Thomas Weber, who I've had the good fortune of getting to know over the past few years. Mr. Weber is Professor of History and International Affairs and Director of the Center for Global Security and Governance at the University of Aberdeen. He also serves as Senior Associate at the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Holding a master's degree and PhD from Oxford University, he has previously held positions at the University of Glasgow, the University of Chicago, the University of Pennsylvania, and the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and Harvard University. His most recent book is Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi, published by Basic Books. Mr. Weber is co-author of a report on the future of transatlantic relations and serves as an analyst of contemporary international affairs for a number of organizations and news outlets. Thomas, it's clear that you have really achieved a tremendous amount of academic success and have been uh, the forefront of a lot of policymaking and a lot of intelligent analysis. And I'm really thrilled, as I said, to have you here because I'm an amateur at this, but I've been really interested in the anarchy and the Republican Party and Donald Trump for a really long time. In 2015, I wrote an article for the New York Observer called Freedom Caucus, 2015 and Russian Anarchists in 1917. In it, I try to make the point that the Freedom Caucus had little or nothing to do with the Republican Party. In 2015, I sensed that they wanted to blow up the government. This is when they were trying to create a default of the government, cancel the debt. They were fighting over the import-export bank, one of the most obscure little institutions in American government. But they were willing to go to the mat and you know, close down the government for as long as it took. And I sensed something was going on here that was really not, quote, Republican. Later on, I wrote an article in 2017 called Stop Calling uh, Trump and His Supporters Republicans. It was just so obvious to me that him and his Republican supporters were not Republicans. They were, in fact, in my mind, anarchists. And then after the, all of that, I see you recently have written one of the most you know, profound papers, 23 pages, and it's called Anarchy in the State of Nature in Donald Trump's America and Adolf Hitler's Germany by Thomas Weber. Thomas, who did you write this for? What made you write this? And please explain why you started to realize or think that anarchy and uh, the state of nature in Donald Trump's America uh, had something to do with the anarchy in Adolf Hitler's Germany. Thanks, Johnson. Thanks so much for having me. Um, the piece is for a forthcoming book on American fascism, which has grown out of a um, discussion we had initially with a number of scholars of fascism at the um, German Studies Association. And uh, we took this further and thought we really should um, turn this into a book because we felt for very different reasons that we had something to say here, even though, I mean, I suppose we were really divided in because I mean, about half of us really thought that what we're experiencing in America now, or we've been experiencing for the last few years in America, is really about the resurgence of fascism. And I, from the beginning, I've always felt uneasy about this. I always felt that fascism and invocations of Hitler, the way that they were made, 
didn't quite add up. I've, of course, written two books about how Hitler became Hitler, how Hitler was radicalized, and it just seemed that ultimately Hitler's goals were just so different from Trump's goals to somehow suggest that Trump is Hitler or that Trump is a fascist didn't add up. But then again, it also seemed to me that there's some things were blatantly similar, which people really weren't focusing upon in the approaches of Putin and Trump, which is precisely actually their approach to the state of nature and their approach to anarchy. It just seemed strange to me that people, yeah, talked a little bit about anarchy. They talked a bit about Steve Bannon. They talked a bit about Lenin, but not really about the approaches of Hitler and Trump to anarchy. And uh, it seemed to me what was so obvious to me was that they were very similar in their views of anarchy and human nature, but that they fundamentally disagree in how to respond to that state of nature. Okay. It seems to me, going to today's headlines, that we have, I'm now going to call this clownarchy. We don't really have anarchy, we have clownarchy. I mean, when we look at what Madison Cawthorn is doing Mo Brooks, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron Johnson, Lauren Boebert, and the brilliant woman today who's got a million Twitter views or more, who's decided that the space cadets or something is going to come down and uh, show us 18 videos and indict 3,000 Democrats, and there'll be a whole new world order based on the space agency rescuing America. She was interviewed after a Trump rally in Michigan the other night. It's hilarious to watch. These people don't seem to me to be fascists. They actually don't even seem to be anarchists. They seem to be clowns. Yet they're endorsed, indulged, and birthed by the Republican Party. So did Hitler have clowns in Germany where they were complete bozos running around like Mo Brooks and Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron Johnson and Ma Madison Cawthorn that are actually embarrassments to the Republican Party or to the Nazi Party? And hopefully they don't seem to be embarrassing the Republicans too much. What's going on there? It's a really good question. I think there's a really difference. I can't really think of that kind of clownish characters in the Nazi parties. Sure, I mean, you might have the occasional oddball there, but I think in that <laughs> sense, I don't want to say the Nazi party was a more serious uh, political movement because, I mean, you obviously had also all these weird conspiracy theories, but not quite these same kind of clownish characters. But I'm not so sure whether I would totally say just because they're clownish that they're not somehow anarchist of a kind. And what I yes, mean is, I think is they that are. The... I, I think they are anarchists of a kind. That's what I'm asking you to explore with me. I do think yeah. they're anarchists of a kind in the sense that I don't think they have a policy or, or a vision of what comes after this. I think they just want to, you know, create chaos and blow it up and throw crazy statements out that make no sense. So, yeah, I, please go on in that vein. I don't think that they're at all, you know, fascists. I think I don't think they're fascists at all, but I think we've got this strange kind of confluence there that on the one hand, they just want to blow things up. On a different level, they are just kind of fed up with politics as they used to. I mean, they just want to kind of destroy the status quo, which I suppose is the same thing as to say that they won't want to blow things up. But I also think that they have a kind of very unsophisticated subscription to ideas about American liberty or kind of a certain kind of American libertarian um, ideas where or kind of um, extreme uh, pursuit of egotistical self-interest, which kind of co is... But they is, don't. But, but, but they really don't. If you want to be gay or transgender or whatever, something deviant or 
then they don't have any sense of liberty that you're allowed to do what you want to do. You know, sure, but we, yeah, we had on a very smart professor of political philosophy a couple of podcasts ago, and he called them Christo-fascists, Christo-fascists. So he was sure that they weren't anarchists and he's sure that they weren't Republicans. They, they had their own vision of how everybody should behave. And if you didn't conform to that, you know, you weren't in the tent. Um, I think that sounds right. But even though, of course, you also have got to be careful here not to have too prescriptive a view of what anarchist or libertarian actually ideas are. Because, I mean, obviously, libertarians would, of course, also believe that libertarianism should extend to social issues, which is, of course, not the case here. But that, of course, does not mean that there is not a certain kind of almost mafia-like belief in the pursuit of self-interest and libertarian ideas in terms of the economic sphere. And I suppose where there is some kind of convergence between the kind of clowns that you've just described and the kind of conspiracy theorists and idiots in Nazi Germany or in Weimar Germany is that they pursue or they support kind of crazy ideas where kind of people say, look, how could people possibly believe all this kind of nonsense? And and of course, you also have these kind of conspiratorial ideas in America now. And people say, how could they possibly really believe that the Clintons are going to drink the blood of babies or something like that? And And the answer, of course, is that the majority of them do not. But there is a kind of metaphorical truth in that kind of clownish behavior, in those kind of ideas that are being expressed in that there are certain kind of core beliefs behind that. The core we believe, uh, so we converge in our ideas, which is to say that I think ultimately they're driven by a anarchist desire to just destroy things. And maybe where Trump goes a little bit further is, is that I think Trump wants to destroy things, but he also has a certain vision of how the world works and how the world should operate while I think some of his supporters now don't go even as far as that. They really just want to destroy things. Ah, okay. So one of the subtitles of your paper is Donald Trump and Adolf Hitler's State of Nature. Give us two minutes on that. What does that mean? What I try to explain there is what do they actually ultimately think drives human behavior? And my point is to actually say that they ultimately all think that um, the state of nature is kind of Hobbesian. It's kind of dog-eat-dog um, kind of fight for existence. They think just like Thomas Hobbes did in the 17th century, that there is continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, in short, in the state of nature. And they do think that, and I think this becomes particularly clear in their views of international affairs, that that is what human nature is like. One of them thinks that this can't be overcome and the other one thinks that it can. But so let me just go back one step here. What I'm trying to say here is that they both think that it's an illusion that there can be international order that is underpinned by norms or by kind of liberal ideas. They both think that ultimately based on a study of past experience, states will just always fight for survival. They will always just try to maximize their own power. 
And they both ridicule the politicians of their own era in thinking that they're really stupid and not realizing that that is what human nature is really like. So when, for instance, Donald Trump says that he's a very stable genius and that all politicians are just so stupid, whether they're Democratic or Republican, I think he's quite serious here in saying that they are both mistaken in thinking that this kind of state of nature can be overcome. It can only be contained. And likewise, Adolf Hitler was saying that based on past experience of looking at what happened in international affairs in the 19th century or how Germany was played at Versailles, he thinks that there is only might, no right international affairs. They both ultimately agree there's only might no right international affairs. So this is, I think, one way of showing that they think that human nature is ultimately everyone fights against everyone else. But the question then is, how do they respond to that? And it is here that they respond really, really differently. So Hitler thinks that the international order cannot be managed. And he thinks that this might actually be tragic. So it's, he's not necessarily thinking this is great, but he thinks it's human nature, that there will be a forever war of everyone against everyone. So there will be continual struggle for survival. But Donald Trump actually thinks, no, this can be managed. He thinks it can't be overcome. So he thinks that the UN or NATO is just stupid. This is why, for instance, it makes mm -hmm. sense that he said that NATO just bought the shit out of him. Unlike Adolf Hitler, he thinks this can actually be managed. He thinks that, I mean, ultimately for that, we have to kind of look at where Donald Trump comes from. He comes from how he was socialized in the kind of the underbelly of the construction world of New Jersey and New York and how he was socialized watching gangster movies. He ultimately thinks that this can all be managed and this can be managed in a kind of mafias kind of way where each state will just pursue their self-interest, but the leaders of states will strike deals. There's also the art of the deal at the level of the state, while Hitler simply thinks that that is not possible. Okay, uh, let's, let's accept that. What I don't understand if we accept what your premise is, and it's certainly smart and probably correct, is just why does he create so much chaos in order to achieve those goals? It looks to me like he's weakened every fiber of America. I mean, every fiber, his latest brilliant idea of putting Herschel Walker in the uh, in the United States Senate from Georgia. The Republicans are gagging over this. This man is not well. He's admitted he has mental illness. His wife has charged him with spousal abuse. I don't think he has a clue if you asked him like what the first clause of the Bill of Rights is or give me three words from the Declaration of Independence, or even he might not even know what NATO is. I mean, this is not a fit candidate in, in, in anybody's opinion for governor of Georgia. And they're choking under this because they may lose because he's so, you know, off the walls. And there are recent articles about all of this by many commentators. This is just an example of this constant fighting with everyone, uh, calling names, dividing people, creating chaos. I've likened him to the Joker in Batman movies. That's not a serious player on the global scene looking to exercise power in international affairs. I mean, I just see chaos and I don't see how a chaotic America is going to project strength on the international stage. So what's going on with that? 
Well, I think there's two things going on here. I mean, one thing we have to look at is is what actually Trump's vision domestically is. I mean, I said a second ago how he thought that somehow internationally things could be managed. Right. It's more important if we want to look at the future of American democracy, we have to look at Trump's vision of America, how things can be managed domestically. But then we also have got to look at the kind of politician that you've just talked about who are superficially like Trump, but in many ways go beyond Trump, and which is, as we'll see in a couple of minutes or so, is why I've always said from the beginning, I'm less worried about Trump than what might come after Trump. And what I mean with that is that by destroying the fabric of American politics, Trump created the conditions to, for either absolute idiots to, 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 to thrive or alternatively for people who are even more, even scarier than him. In many ways, you might at least say the total clowns would probably also, once they're in power, they would not be able to implement their ideas. So in many ways, I'm more worried mm-hmm. about the kind of politician who is smarter than Trump rather than who is even more dumb than Donald Trump. But what I meant when I referred to trying to understand what Trump's vision for America or for domestically is. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Even if Trump has no idea about the American Constitution or about checks and balances, I mean, he ultimately thinks that the state just exists for the pursuit of self-interest. And he thinks that the state is held together through a kind of intricate web of power relationships. But he never understood while he was in power that there are checks and balances. He never understood that he couldn't just fire people. He never understood that he couldn't just do X or Y. And uh, he was genuinely flabbergasted when he realized he couldn't do so. But he somehow thought that there is, I suppose, he had some kind of vision of a vulgarized version of Ayn Rand's um, embrace of ethical egoism and thought that this is ultimately holding America together. And that is, this is holding, uh, I was going to say American society, but he, there is no su- such thing as society in a Donald Trump's world. It really is just a web of power relationships, which are structured by the pursuit of individual self-interest. In the case of uh, the kind of politicians that you might see now in Georgia and elsewhere, there is ultimately no understanding of that anymore. So there you really just have people who are basically just destructive and certainly have no idea that somehow this kind of pursuit of self-interest might create some kind of stable society. So in that sense, it it is really scary what might come. You know, there's a school of management theory that says sometimes a leader will appoint people under him intentionally or unintentionally, unconsciously, in so inferior to him that he doesn't have to worry about their replacing him. And this is you know, pretty common in corporate America or has been said so. Is it possible that this anarchist Trump just wants to make sure that everybody is so crazy and you know, is it such a zoo of freaks under him that uh, he he actually looks like the stable genius. Could this be some unconscious or conscious strategy to go around and like find the the absolute you know most unqualified candidate, throw that up there and hope that you know hope for the best because that's what the Republicans are fighting fighting about right now. There's a fascinating book that I just in the middle middle of by Tim Alberta called American Carnage on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of Trump. 
and you wrote this in 2019. It's a chapter and verse political reportage of the, of the rise of Trump in the so-called, you know, conservative wing of the Republican Party. And and really, really interesting, but because at every point there was an attempt to fight back about this. And it started with Sarah Palin, according to him. You know, she was so manifestly ignorant and incompetent to assume the position of vice president, let alone a heartbeat away from a, an ailing president, that it was clear when they did that, that they were willing to do anything to theoretically get elected, that they really didn't care about the United States of America at all. And if you even gave a damn about this country, you would never put Sarah Palin near near the uh, the presidential seat. The book goes on from there. But I guess my question is, coming back to you know what Trump's vision is, is it possible that his vision is that he thinks he's going to survive in chaos, that he alone will create chaos and then like sort of rise up in a phoenix-like manner out of the dust and say, you know, it is all chaos but me? Because he's made statements like that before. It's all about me. It's me. Only I can control this. Only I can fix this. Is that possible? Is that part of the, the anarchist Hitler playbook? I don't think it's part of the Hitler playbook because Hitler, of course, thinks that, yes, there is anarchy, but Hitler thinks that anarchy can be overcome. I mean, he has got a vision of, of a strong state and a strongly regimented society. So in that sense, Hitler is, Hitler's playbook is very different. As far as Trump is concerned, I guess you're right. I mean, the um, I'm not sure how much of a conscious strategy this is, but obviously he genuinely has got this idea that it is only he who can hold things together, who can reform things, and everyone else is just stupid. I guess in his four years in power, he realized that when he he did appoint people, that uh, some of whom were actually quite strong leaders, but he quickly realized he could not control them, they would speak up. Um, they would try to contradict him. And, uh, and of course, he then kept on firing them. And it's, of course, also quite clear how by the end, particularly during the January 6th insurrection, he was even frustrated with his vice president. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to argue that he is now really looking for the kind of people who he thinks can win the elections, but can be easily be controlled, even though where things might get complicated is, is that you have now a lot of candidates who are genuinely just clowns, but then you also have candidates who, I mean, think of Eric Greitens in Missouri. He's playing the part of being a Trump supporter, but unlike the kind of people we've just talked about, he is, he's, of course, uh, highly intelligent and knows what he is doing, which in many ways make things much worse. Interesting. But he's, he's struggling with his own demons and, and his own baggage, even if he's intelligent. Something really interesting occurred yesterday that I, has a backdrop to all of this in my mind. And that's Joe Biden was quoted by someone or, or himself as saying that he thought Rupert Murdoch was the most dangerous man in the world. That's a really strong statement and a very powerful statement. And you and I have talked about this a lot in the past. I may or may not disagree with him, but I certainly understand why he would make that statement. In fact, you know, Thomas, you and I have talked about this in the past because I wrote an article called The Digital Beer Hall, where I compared Fox News and other outlets like it to the beer halls of Munich that gave rise to Hitler. Would you talk about that? Would you talk about the rise of the media, the right-wing media, if you will, or the anarchist media? Because really, 
when you listen again to most of the Fox commentators, they're much more anarchistic in my mind than they are Republicans or even right wing. It's all about hatred of the government, dysfunction of the government, lies the government, it's blow it up time. Nothing that the government ever does is right. They've got, you know, three million listeners every night in a state of, you know, high dudgeon over the incompetence and, and falsehoods being told to them by the federal and state governments. How does that work out with anarchy and Trump and Hitler? Well, I think here we really do see a phenomenon that is um, strangely similar to 1920s Germany, which is basically a public sphere where people treat each other as enemies rather than as adversaries, where people are yeah. constantly fighting at each other, where any compromise is a rotten compromise, where any kind of common ground is being destroyed. And of course, once that kind of common ground is destroyed, once the, then the fabric of democracy is destroyed. This is why this is, I think, so dangerous because, I mean, ultimately, you don't need just you need good institutions for democracies to survive. You also need an underlying spirit with which to fill these institutions, or you need kind of a fabric that is holding things together. And um, it is really now in the media in recent years that that has been destroyed, where where there's also no longer a, even a sense or even attempt by the media or by certain media outlets to, uh, that there's a common understanding that there is something like the truth that can be discussed or deliberated between different sides of an argument, that there's only us against them. Where I would disagree with President Biden is that Murdoch is the biggest problem of the world now. I think Rupert Murdoch, the media are, of course, helped to create this this system. I mean, he helped to to destroy maybe media both in the US as well as in other countries. However, I think ultimately Rupert Murdoch also lost control of the game. I mean, ultimately now we have, also because of social media, of course, with such a fragmented media world and where almost everyone can have his own radio station or his own uh, news agency, if you will, through Twitter or Facebook or other social media. So in many ways, if we were still at a stage where we're talking about a small number of TV stations and radio stations and newspapers, it would be difficult enough if there's no common ground. But it's also you would only have got to get a relatively small number of players together and say, look, this is not going to work. We really need to do something about it. This is no longer possible because, I mean, we're ultimately um, at a stage where you don't have three rate, three TV stations or three radio stations, not even 300, but probably through social media, you have 3,000 or 30,000 or 300,000. Yeah. And what I mean with that is everyone can just listen to their own echo chamber and and find confirmation in that. Yeah. And uh, And I think this is really destroying democracy. Yeah, it's a really smart analysis, what you just said. I, I couldn't agree more. It's very insightful. And when I look at the authoritarian governments of uh, Xi Jinping and, uh, and Putin, what I see is their intense focus on suppressing media. They, they just will not allow 
any opinion to come out of you know China. She will not allow anything to be said that he doesn't want said, or his censors wants you know won't pass anything. Putin's the same way now. They must close all media, even social media. You know everything that's uh, on WeChat is that they don't like disappears in in five or six seconds and is gone forever. That clearly they see the proliferation of viewpoints and the open discussions of a democracy as a real threat to a, a government. Otherwise, they wouldn't censor. They wouldn't make such an effort to censor everything. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. But um, in what they do, they are far more similar to, I guess, what someone like Hitler was doing. I mean, they really are still going for total control of yes. the media and of suppression of the expression of opinions. In America, in the West, you have a very different problem. The, the challenge to democracy comes come from the other extreme, where there is so much, it's not just freedom of expression, but just so many different views that in a way you don't need to suppress them because it becomes then easy to pursue information warfare as to use disinformation. And of course, Putin and, and I guess the Chinese and certainly other state actors do um, take advantage of that in trying to change public opinion in America. Because I mean, you could of course say in an ideal way, in an idealistic way, if you actually have this kind of proliferation of hundreds or thousands of little news outlets or radio stations, it could be great for democracy. But of course, as we know, it's so easy to exploit them and for disinformation campaigns to make their way through these thousands of little news outlets and uh, social media channels. And this is being exploited both by uh, foreign actors, particularly Russia, of course, but also other countries. But it's, of course, also used domestically. I mean, this was, of course, very much exploited when Donald Trump came to power and continues to, uh, to, to happen to the present day. So, yes, there's a huge, huge problem in, um, in Russia and China on the one hand and America on the other hand, as far as the media is concerned. But the problem is diametrically different. Okay, how do we walk down, you know, the, this mountain of anarchy with the sub subhead of fascism in America? How do we walk down this mountain, and how does or can democracy return or revert to a more civil, more logical discourse? How do the clown clownarchists get thrown out? Uh, what would cause everybody to say, you know, this is really crazy? We, we, what are we thinking? The space agency isn't going to come and and save you know Donald Trump and uh, and imprison five thousand uh, Democrats. Just where does the magical crazy thinking get stop and 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 a more sane sane approach come? How does that happen in a democracy in your mind? The truth of the matter is we don't really quite understand how this is happening. And I think mm. in a way there I really have got to point um, at my own profession. I guess both historians but also political scientists. This is we're kind of also drunk on studying how things are blowing up and how democracy dies, how wars happen, that we don't really study on how societies are being repaired, how societies come back from, from the brink. I mean, in many ways, it's it's understandable. It's far more interesting to write a book on the death of democracy rather than on the painstaking process of repairing it. But we really do need to understand this process better. Part of the answer, I think, is that sometimes there is just a certain kind of half-time to populism 
sometimes people seem to just somehow get tired of it for reasons we don't quite understand. I mean, a few years ago, things seemed to go really badly in Greece and in Britain. So in both countries, uh, we had kind of uh, populist leaders coming to the fore, but Greece was being returned to a kind of centrist uh, politics. And in Britain, sure, I mean, we still have Boris Johnson, but at the same time, Nigel Farage, the leader of the party that uh, that was really supporting most Brexit, namely UKIP, as well as um, on the side of Labour with Jeremy Corbyn, we had kind of populist extremist politicians and they have both disappeared. So there seems to be signs in various countries that countries can come back from the brink and that there is a certain half time to this kind of uh, populism. But at the same time, we should not just expect that magically things will also be fine in the US or in other countries, because I guess past experience has also shown us, for instance, in interwar years, in interwar Europe, that some countries were flirting with populism and demagoguery, but ultimately came back from the brink, while in other countries things went catastrophically wrong. I think part of the answer is that people have to take a conscious choice at some point. Leaders have to take a conscious choice at some point to stop vilifying the other side. And I think this is part of the the appeal for Joe Biden when he was running for for president is, I mean, whether he's ultimately succeeding, we still don't know. But he was actually, unlike a lot of people in his party or among supporters of his parties, he was saying, well, look, ultimately we need to rebuild America And we need to deal with uh, Republicans. We cannot just wish them away. I think in many ways, we just need to foster that kind of ideas amongst the elites of America and of other countries that are on the brink if we want to repair America. I think we need to study far more positive examples from the past, ranging from extreme examples such as, let's say, the attempt on Hitler's life. And you might say, well, are you suggesting here that somehow someone should uh, take out a political leader? So no, that's really not the point. The lesson of the failed attempt on Hitler's life is how regime loyalists turn against leaders once they have gone too crazy. Let's just recall what happened in July 20th, 1944, which was, of course, that a number of officers who had been regime loyalists had ultimately said enough is enough, and they tried to kill Hitler. And the question that this raises is, how can we actually entice regime loyalists who realize, look, this is crazy what Trump or whoever is doing. And it's now my my duty to well, speak up, well, to Thomas, say we, no, Thomas, Mr. President. Thomas, we, we have hundreds of those, but they go, instead of using bullets, they write books. We've got a hundred. There's a, there's a bookshelf probably about six feet long right now, if at least of, of, of memoirs and books, you know, renouncing Trump. I mean, everybody from, you know, Cohn is his is, is attorney to some, you know, publicist that worked for his wife, whatever her name is. It doesn't matter. There are hundreds of these books. I mean, it's hysterical. We don't, you know, they all get a certain advance. They last for two weeks. Everybody's shocked at the revelations that he's crazy, insane, irrational, makes no sense, pays no attention, you know, flies off the handle, curses, the whole thing. And it seems to go on. I mean, so that that's, and I think in America, how we, we deal with uh, the elites that uh, have changed or turned on the leader, they write books and get advances. Anyway, Thomas, we're going to have to wrap up, and I really thank you. I would urge any and everybody listening 
to find Thomas Weber's most recent book, Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi, published by Basic Book. It's a really interesting book and, and really smart. And his articles are uh, searchable, I'm sure, on the web. They're pretty smart, scholarly stuff. And thank you for spending some time on Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.